Well, this morning our text comes from Lord's Day 52, the first question and answer, um, looking at what it means to pray, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Uh, And I'd like to prepare for that by reading from Ephesians 6. Now, you might wonder why are we doing the catechism lesson in the morning? We've been doing it in the evening. Um, And there's two reasons for that. One, um, and most importantly, as we've been going through Exodus in our morning services, um, we've gotten to Exodus 19, which is a beautiful reminder of who God's people are. And we have baptism this evening. And that is a vivid demonstration of who God's people are. And so it seemed really appropriate to have that text at that time. But at the same time, this is the Sunday nearest to Reformation Day. And uh, I can't think of a more clear example of why we need God's protection and strength for the battle than Reformation Day. Because the reason the church needed Reformation was because Satan had been exceedingly active. He loves nothing more than to rip God's word away from his people. Back in the day, he did that by a corrupt church, specifically corrupt church leaders, who, lusting after power, insisted that they alone were fit to read and interpret God's Word. And so they outlawed the translating and and publishing of that Word in the language of the common people. But sadly, he continues to battle, to rob us of God's Word. Not so much by powers of a corrupt church, but by laziness and by peer pressure and by dark forces within our culture that seek to shame and even to outlaw the reading and the posting of God's Word. In other words, our enemy has not fallen silent. He's not ceased to fight to eradicate from us the word by which we have life. And so it's quite appropriate that this morning we consider together uh, this important prayer, seeking protection and strength for the battle. Reading first Ephesians 6, verses 10 through 18, the apostle writes, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication, to that end keep alert with all perseverance, 
making supplication for all the saints. Amen. Amen indeed. Now, Lord's Day 52 asks, what does the sixth petition of the Lord's Prayer mean? And summarizing many passages of Scripture like the one we just read, it answers, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil means we are so weak that we cannot stand on our own for a moment. And our sworn enemies, the devil, the world, and our own flesh, never stop attacking us. And so, Lord, uphold us and make us strong by the power of your Holy Spirit, so that we may not be defeated in this spiritual fight, but may firmly rest, resist our enemies until we finally win the complete victory. Beloved brothers and sisters, through our Lord Jesus Christ, you know, time can be a funny thing. When you were a young child, each grade level in school seemed to last a short eternity. It seemed like you would never get to middle school, and then that you would never get to high school, and then that you would never get to graduation. It just seemed to stretch out unendingly before you until you actually got to graduation. And then, if your experience is at all like mine, you paused for a moment. You looked back and were struck by the fact that you're finally there. Because when you look back, it seemed like middle school was just a week ago. And, and you can remember third grade with stunning clarity. In fact, you can remember events that happened in kindergarten and you wonder, wait, how did it happen so quickly? And that sense of time speeding by it grows as we get older. When we're in the middle of the race, the race seems endless, but when we hit the finish line, we look back and it seems like it lasted just an instant. And that holds true for all of life. It seems, as we're living it, like a long time, that 60, 70, 80 years that God gives us in this world. But in the face of eternity, the Lord really doesn't keep us waiting long before He takes us into the fullness of eternal life. But of course, we're not, this life is not a waiting room. We're very active here, and that activity that we do here is essential. Many have compared our life in this world to a soldier's time in basic training. I didn't serve in the military, but those who have tell me that basic training seems endless as you're going through it because all of the, the hard things that you're going through, all the ways that it's, it's stretching you and challenging you and pushing you beyond your boundaries. But when you finally get through it, you realize it was just a moment and it was an essential moment because it prepared you for the battle. It prepared you for life in the force where you will be, your life will be threatened all the time and it gives you those skills that you need in order to stand firm. Well, our life here is basic training for an eternity of serving God. But unlike basic training in the Army or the Air Force or the Navy, our basic training happens on the battlefield. The shouts we hear are shouts of genuine alarm. The explosions, that's real ordnance. We're honestly, truly being attacked even as we're being trained. 
And that means we need to take that training exceptionally seriously. That's why Jesus taught us to pray this prayer. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. It's a militant prayer. Asking our king for the power and the preservation that will allow us to persist in the fight until we get to our goal, which is the fullness of eternal life. It's a request, this prayer, for provisions, for ammunition, for strength to enable us to engage and to survive the enemy. Because unless we are preserved, we cannot gain the training we will need for all of eternity. So this is a necessary prayer if we would survive the battle. And if that battle would serve to prepare us and equip us for what comes next. In this prayer, Christ teaches us to seek refuge in our Almighty Father. That's our theme. Christ teaches us to seek refuge in our Almighty Father. And it's a refuge, we see first of all, from our unceasing enemies. Understand, this is a prayer. When he, when he calls us uh, in Matthew 6 as he explains the Lord's Prayer, when he calls us to pray, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil, he's calling us to acknowledge our weakness. Because you see, Christ has freed all who are in him from sin. Romans 8 talks about that at great length. Tells us that the one who has died is free from the power of sin. Sin no longer has dominion over him. As long as we're not dead... Sin binds us as tight as chains of steel. But when we die, sin has no power over us. Well, Christ died on our behalf. So when we have faith in Him, we're joined to Him. That means the death He died, He died for us. We ourselves have been freed from sin. The chains have been broken off. It no longer has power over us. And yet, we still struggle, don't we? We struggle because we are weak, because we are susceptible, because we give in to the voice of the tempter. Our old slave owner is powerful. Satan's voice is so seductive. We're like what we've seen of Israel out in the wilderness as we worked through Exodus. We see hardship in front of us. And forgetting all of the destructiveness and all of the, the pain and the suffering and the tears and the grief of our slavery to sin, we long to go back to that land of slavery. We, long, we, we, think, about, we think about how well we ate. We think about those moments of pleasure. And we forget all of the long hours of misery and toil and terror and darkness. We're weak. Like Israel in the wilderness, tempted to turn around and go back to the land of slavery. And yet sin, we have to remember, sin is a wicked force. It never leaves us unscathed. Every time we touch it, it hurts us, it damages us. You might not see the wound, it might not bleed, but it hurts us nonetheless. And it offends God every single time. Kids, that's why your parents spank you when you do wrong or, or 
bring other punishments against you. It's so that you'll recognize that sin always hurts. It always brings pain and destruction. So Christ teaches us to seek refuge from the unceasing enemies that strive to lead us in to sin. Who are those enemies? Our catechism points to three of them, the chief one of which is Satan. When Jesus taught us to pray this prayer in Matthew 6, verse 13 literally says we should pray for deliverance from the evil one. And that's referring to Satan who is the chief among our enemies. In Satan, there is nothing that is good. All that Satan desires, all that he seeks for is destructive against us. He appears, the Bible tells us, as an angel of light, but that appearance is a deception because Jesus says he was a murderer from the beginning and that he is the father and originator of lies. Nor does Satan fight alone. Revelation 12 tells us that when he fell, when he rejected God, he took a third of the angels with him. And those fallen angels, which we call demons, they joined Satan in seeking our downfall. That's why Paul said in Ephesians 6, that we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Those are the chief enemies who strive against us. And they do so in at least two ways. The most obvious way is persecution. Second Timothy 3 says that all who desire to live a godly life in Christ will be persecuted. Now sometimes the persecution is harsh, the stuff that we see in places like Sudan and Syria and well, throughout the Middle East, not to mention China and North Korea, where people are uh, incarcerated, where they're beaten, where they're fined, where they're sometimes killed, where their buildings and their businesses are burned, where women are beheaded and men are harmed in ways that we can't even describe. That's certainly persecution, and it happens today in our world. But it's also persecution. When you are mocked for refusing to work on the Lord's Day, when you are belittled or taken advantage of because you forgive those who offend you, when you are passed over for a promotion because you're not willing to do whatever it takes to get the job done. Satan loves to attack us with persecution because just as a spanking often convinces you not to disobey your dad, that persecution works in the opposite way, teaching you that the world will make it hurt when you do what is right. Satan loves persecution because by persecuting he can cause people to follow after his way simply to avoid the disapproval and the hatred of an unbelieving world but he also has a far, far more subtle weapon that goes alongside of persecution and that's deception Satan is in fact the father of lies nothing that comes out of his mouth is the truth and we are surrounded in our culture by those lies. Our government schools are absolutely founded on the lie 
that you do not need faith in Christ, that you do not need the Word of God in order to understand the truth. That's a lie. It rests, those, those educational institutions are founded on the lie that man is sufficient to judge true from false, right from wrong, without appeal to God and His Word. That's a lie. And so when they teach the, the things that we can agree on, 2 plus 2 equals 4, you know, chlorophyll is what uh, makes plants green and causes or allows them to translate the energy of the sun into the energy by which they grow. We can agree with those facts, but the way they get to those facts is entirely wrong. The underlying worldview by which they interpret the world is resting on lies. And it's not just the educational institutions. It's the way they do government. It's the way they judge right and wrong. Those lies are pervasive. They're subtle. And they are absolutely wicked. And we can't stand up against them on our own. And it doesn't help that Satan and his demons are not working alone. They have as their ally the world. Jesus said... In John 18, verse 36, he said, My kingdom is not of this world. This world has pledged allegiance to Satan. Satan is, in fact, this world's prince, which unbelievers through the world over serve. And that means that we are surrounded by enemies. Jesus said in John 15, verse 19, If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own, but because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. And noting that the world will persecute us as it persecuted him, Jesus says, a servant is not greater than his master. If they kept my word, they would also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. So we, brothers and sisters, are called to recognize and to hate the brokenness and the rebellion of the world where we live. We are, in a very real sense, pilgrims in this world, striving, striving, on the one hand, to reject the rebellion that surrounds us, while at the same time, honoring and obeying our King and thereby changing the world for our good. It's a very strange dichotomy. We love, we love this nation we live. We love the work that we do. And yet... How much brokenness and rebellion fill this nation? How much decay and sorrow and grief fill our work? Right? There's an already not yet. The kingdom of God is already here. We're already working to expand it, to manifest it in the world. But at the same time, we recognize this is not yet the new heavens and the new earth. There's still brokenness. There's sin. There's rebellion. There's lies. There's evil. This world is not yet our home. And those who belong to the world, those who are wholeheartedly citizens of this fallen world, they will seek to oppress, they will seek to lead astray the people of God. Why? Because whenever they see you, when they see you doing the right thing, when they see you forgiving those who, who offend you, when they see you refusing to do whatever it takes because you would rather do what pleases and honors God... When they see you refusing to cheat a customer to get ahead, 
when they see you keeping your promise even when it hurts, that afflicts their conscience. It shows them that there is a better way, that they don't have to give in to the ways of the flesh and the world. And they hate that. It reminds them that there will be a judgment, that they will have to stand before God Himself and explain why they persisted in this rebellion and they absolutely despise that. And so they do whatever they can to shame you for doing the right thing. They do whatever they can to get you to join their ranks. And again, you're too weak. But that's not the worst enemy. We got Satan persecuting and lying. We got the world joining forces with him to undermine us and and lead us astray. But the worst enemy is the one that we can't see. Because it's the enemy that lives within us. When we walk into sin, when we give way to temptation, from where does that come? James 1 gives us some insight When James says each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire when it is conceived gives birth to sin. And sin when it's fully grown brings forth death. In other words, temptation arises ultimately from within us. We've been freed from our slavery to sin objectively. But there's a part of us that doesn't want to be free. The part of us that that still hates the holiness of God that cries out to go back to Egypt and its slavery. Now, as Christians, we're called to be conformed to, remade in the image of Christ. But our old nature, what our catechism calls our own flesh, hates that calling. And so we're fighting an enemy that's within us. Now, that enemy has been defeated, but he still speaks. He's still manipulates. Beloved, these enemies, Satan and the world and our own flesh, are formidable. They fight with power and persistence. And if we rely on our own strength, even for a moment, we will fall victim to them. We will cast our lot with them. And so while we need to take refuge from our unceasing enemies, we need to do so by resting in our unconquerable God. And that's the second aspect of what we're praying for here. Notice with me how we are to pray. Asking first, lead us not into temptation. Now, this is on the one hand a confession that our God is sovereign. He is able to lead us in the way that we go. He is able to to guide our path in a way that gets us out of that temptation into which we would fall. But we need to be careful, we need to be careful that we understand what we're not saying here. It's helpful to to understand the distinction between temptations and testing. Tempting is an act of drawing someone into sin, seeking their downfall. And James 1 tells us, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. However, God does test us. Testing is an act of stretching someone's faith so that they'll become stronger. James 1 verse 2 says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Testing. Of various kinds. Count it all joy 
Even when you're struggling, when you're in an end of your own strength, when you don't know how you're going to go forward, or when you're really struggling to know what's the right thing to do here. Count it all joy, he says, because you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. In other words, God allows us to be tested and strengthened. When we're tested, which sometimes we, we stumble when we're tested, Sometimes we find that we're not nearly as strong or secure as we thought. Sometimes we say really stupid things. We act in really foolish ways. We get embarrassed. We get hurt. We fall down. And we realize that I was trusting myself. I was resting in my strength. I was relying on my wisdom. And we have to... Renew our intent to rest in the Lord, to trust in Him alone. And suddenly we become stronger. God allowed us to stumble, not because He wanted us to suffer, but because He wanted us to see you were standing on the wrong foundation. You were resting in the wrong strength. You were relying on the wrong wisdom. You must rely on Christ, because apart from Christ, you have nothing. You can do nothing. So we're asking God to guide the testing that we endure. And when we face temptation, as 1 Corinthians 10 tells us, to provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. That's to be our intention when we pray, lead us not into temptation. And also when we pray, deliver us from evil or from the evil one. In that request, we're asking God to give us the strength to stand firm against the working of the evil one. In uh, Psalm 74, we find a beautiful example of such a prayer. In Psalm 74, the psalmist first confesses the greatness of God's power in establishing his people as his own. And then he points to the evil that surrounds the people of God and seeks their downfall. And then he declares how powerful God is. He says, God, my king, is from of old, working salvation in the midst of the earth. You divided the sea by your might. You broke the heads of the sea monsters on the, uh, on the waters. And a little later, he says, you fixed all the boundaries of the earth. You make summer and winter, acknowledging the greatness of the power of God over, over even the world itself. The psalmist then prays, do not deliver the soul of your dove to the wild beasts. Do not forget the life of the poor forever. Have regard for the covenant. Arise, O oh God, defend your cause. Folks, that's the kind of prayer that we're called to pray. We heard Paul say in Ephesians 6 verse 10, Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. That's an acknowledgement. By myself, I am weak. I can't stand against Satan or the world even for a moment and I'll surely fall before the enemy within me. But in the Lord and in the strength of His might, there is absolutely no one who can secure my downfall. No one. We're asking God to uphold us 
causing us to stand before the enemy, preventing us from falling before his power, and we're asking him to strengthen us so that we might not only stand but push forward, that we might advance his kingdom in a world that hates him, that we might acknowledge his sovereignty even in the face of the one who would overthrow him. Ephesians 6 tells us how we're to expect him to answer that. Verse 11, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. See, that's how God answers this prayer. He clothes us with the armor of God. Kids, some of you went through uh, vacation Bible school last summer and we talked about the armor of God, didn't we? How does God strengthen us to stand against the enemy? Through the armor of God. He gives us the breast or the belt of truth. His word that allows us to discern when Satan is lying and to reject that lie. He gives us the breastplate of righteousness, protecting us against Satan's taunts and his tempting words. He causes our feet to bear the shoes of the gospel so that we can go forward trusting in His promises, believing all that God has told us about how He will uphold us and never let us fall. He gives us the shield of faith. By means of that shield of faith, we can stop the arrows of Satan's temptations and his lies by which he would, would cause us to doubt God's power to save us. And He gives us the helmet of salvation so that when Satan tries to bash us over the head with reminders of the sins that we've committed, we can remember that we bear the righteousness and the holiness of Christ. All of these are defensive armor that allows us to stand firm against every onslaught of the evil one, but he also gives us an offensive weapon so that we can advance, and that is the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. By means of this Word, kids, why is it that we have you memorize Scripture Why is it that we emphasize the importance of of keeping this word open and reading it daily? It's because this is the weapon by which we fight to establish the kingdom of God in this world. Would you know how to be a good student? Would you understand the lessons that are taught you well? Then you need to understand it in the light of the word of the one who made everything. Would you become a good husband and father, a good wife and mother. There's the instruction manual for how to live with your spouse and how to raise up your children. Would you do the work that God sets before you in a way that's not just effective and profitable, but in a way that's profitable for God's kingdom and that brings glory to Him? Then God gives you the instruction by which you need to advance. But none of it will make a bit of difference if we're not asking God to make it effective. On the other hand, if we ask Him to make it effective, then that sword which we've practiced with every time we picked it up for devotions, it will jump into our hands when we get into the midst of the battle. We will be reminded by the Holy Spirit of exactly the truth that applies to this situation. Exactly the instruction that applies to this particular need. But we must ask. Remember what we heard in Lord's Day 45. God will give His strength and or His His grace and His Holy Spirit only to those who continually and with heartfelt longing ask God 
for these gifts and give him thanks for them. The weapons God gives us, the strength he provides are entirely sufficient to allow us to stand, but we must ask, which is why, why Paul says in Ephesians 6, that we're to be praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication, keeping alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. We need to pray daily. Young people, when you get up in the morning, you need to pray that God would cause you to stand firm, that He would give you the discernment to recognize the temptations before you, that He would enable you to do what you do in a way that honors Him, despite what others might say. And not just the kids. Mom and dad, grandma and grandpa, young men and women, pray daily that the Lord would cause you to stand and to advance, that He would give you the strength and the wisdom, and He will answer that. He will clothe you with those, that, that unassailable armor and arm you with that sword that digs deep into the heart of man and advances the kingdom of our Savior. Through it all, we need to remember this is, in fact, war. It is war in which we're engaged, and that has real implications. The first implication we need to remember is that this is a war from God. He started it. You see, Satan, in his lies... He created an unholy alliance with our first parents in the garden. Though they should have given all allegiance to God and to Him alone, they gave their allegiance to Satan and his lies. And so God, says Genesis 3, established enmity or hatred between Satan and his offspring and the woman and her offspring. And that's us. God established that war, breaking that unholy alliance. And having started that war, it is not a game. The stakes in this conflict are high. Satan seeks nothing less than the souls of men. And we are not capable of standing before him on our own. We are the equivalent of raw recruits dropped into the middle of a war zone. As our catechism says, we are so weak that we cannot stand on our own even for a moment. However, as weak as we are, God is not. God's strength is infinite. His wisdom is unmatched. In Him we are unconquerable. Remember, Jesus said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. He has the power to keep us strong. And in fact, He has already won the battle. When he died on the cross, he said, it is done. It's over. It's complete. The, the war was won. When he rose up from the dead, he rose up a victorious conqueror. And yet the battle continues to rage. He has not seen fit to bring to an end his enemies yet. And that means we, until he comes back, until he puts an end to our enemies, we are called to fight. You need to fight the battle. That means fighting against the temptation to spread that gossip that was whispered in your ear. That means avoiding situations you know will lead you into sin. That means gathering with the saints and being honest with one another and, and submitting to accountability. 
It means embracing discipline so that you put off those sins that once held you captive. It means forgiving those who offended you and rejecting the impulse to get even. All of that is warfare. All of that is fighting. And God will empower us to do it well unto His glory if we ask. And as you fight that fight, know for certain it will soon end. See, this is the last thing we see here. We seek refuge in this war until our ultimate victory. Because the revealing of that victory that's been won will come soon. Christ will return. All will be gathered before Him. All who rejected Him will be judged. And His people will be perfected. Imagine that. No more temptation. No more trials. No more testing. But absolute perfection. How glorious. On that day, we will escape the judgment of God only if we in this life have put our confidence in Christ. The same thing that allows us to stand firm in the battle today, our faith in Christ, is what will allow us to stand without fear on that last great day. Ephesians 6 verse 13 says, We seek the armor of God, we seek the strength of God, so that having done all, we will be able to stand firm. Which means today we must do all. We must pray for God's strength. We must fight the good fight. We must look continually to the Lord our God, to Christ our King, to the Holy Spirit our strength, resting always in Him. And remembering the assurance we read in James 1 verse 12. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised those who love him. That is God's promise to you. That is his assurance. Today the battle, tomorrow the crown. Today the struggle, tomorrow the reward. So recognizing the strength of the enemies before us, let us pray for the strength to endure the battle today. Let us pray that not just for ourselves, but for one another. Husbands, pray for your wives. Wives, pray for your husbands. Parents, pray for your children and for your grandchildren. And God will uphold us unto the very end. Amen. Let's pray. Father, your Son taught us to pray. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. We ask that for ourselves this day. Confessing that we believe that all that we need, you will give us. And that you will not allow us to go down to defeat in this battle. Teach us to stand firmly by the power of Christ. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Beloved, in response, let us confess our confidence in Him as we stand and sing hymn number 257 in our Trinity Psalter hymnal. 257 in the red book. We'll sing all the stanzas.